This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. It is Friday, August 13th on this episode. We'll dive into the three-team race in the NL East. Phillies, Braves, Mets going to probably go down to the wire. We'll talk about the strengths and weaknesses of those teams as the final six or so weeks of this season unfolds. We're going to take a look at the Red Sox and discuss whether or not they deserve as much heat as they've been getting for their trade deadline approach. We're also going to talk about the Cubs retooling efforts. Keith wrote about that recently, so we'll dig in a bit further and try to figure out how long it might be before they can win on the north side of Chicago again. And we'll close things out with some more NL Central talk, taking a closer look at the Brewers as a possible legitimate World Series contender. But Keith, let's start with that NL East. Is it a dumpster fire? Is it just kind of a mess is it actually kind of fun are dumpster fires fun i think these are all questions we could uh, we could explore but uh, as it stands right now entering play thursday phillies and braves both 59 and 55 the mets at 57 and 55 they've missed some games because of rain so they got some makeups to go it's a three-team race for sure the nats sold the deadline the marlins were never really in it i just wonder like are any of these teams actually good enough to do damage once they come out on top of the division at the end of the season. So for starters, let's just say, thank God, it, whether it's a dumpster fire or not, thank God it's there because I've been thinking about this the last couple of days. The season kind of sucks. <laughs> we already know who all the playoff teams are almost all the playoff teams, obviously not the NL East team, but like, I, I, I look every night, you know, what games should I watch? What games have, you know, potential playoff implications. A lot of them don't. And, you know, it's, we saw it. Well, I know we're in, talk about some still some post-trade deadline fallout but a lot of teams were just you know we're out of it screw it everyone everything must go and even if that was the right approach for them individually when you have just such a strong divide between buyers and sellers and which i think is the result you know it's it, it feeds on itself right so what is that an ouroboros the snake right that feeds on its own tail like that's what that thing is um where it's you know what there's a lot of separation going into the season between who's definitely contending and who's definitely not contending. And that drives further stratification between the two. And then you get into the season, the standings are so settled by the middle of July already, where, you know, we know, you know probably know four of the division winners already. We might know five. Um, and then that just further drives more stratifications because team look teams look and say, they're being realistic. Hey, we have no shot. Let's just trade. And then you get even more of this. And we're going to have six weeks with a lot of games between teams that just have no chance to contend and don't look like they're trying. I've had a couple of times recently where a scout has sent me a screenshot of a major league team's lineup. And it's one of those where, hey, if they sent this out on a spring training road game, someone would call the commissioner's office and say, hey, they didn't send enough big leaguers. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I think right? that would describe the Cubs. We'll get to them a little the bit Cubs. later. Like they the have Cubs may have been in one of those screenshots. Absolutely yes. terrible lineup right now. Yeah. 
Um, and it's it's so weird because just two weeks ago, you could look at standings. You could say, oh, Cleveland could put some pressure on the White Sox. It probably won't mm-hmm. happen. That's a 10.5 game gap in the AL Central right now. You know, The A's and Astros are still in it in the AL West. The Mariners have fallen back. The Angels didn't do the things they could have done to possibly close the gap in the last couple of weeks. So they've really fallen out of the race, too. Uh, the Reds are playing well, but the Brewers are just playing better. So that division mm-hmm. is up to eight games for a lead for the Brewers. And then the NL West, you know, the Padres are starting to slip a little further away now. They're eight back of the Giants. And we've yeah. talked about the Giants several times in this show as a team that I don't think we were on board in April or May and probably even June. But I think now if you were a skeptic for the first three months of the season, you're starting to buy a little bit more. And, of course, they bought the trade deadline, which makes that big league roster uh, even better. But I, I think I am grateful for the NL East, regardless of how you want to describe it, because it will be an interesting division battle down to the wire. Uh, let's start with the Phillies. They added Kyle Gibson and Ian Kennedy at the deadline. They got a little more outfield depth now than they had earlier in the year. Uh, Reese Hoskins has a groin strain right now. It doesn't look like it's going to be too serious for him. And I think JT Real Muto is day-to-day with a possible concussion. So they're reasonably healthy right now, as long as that Real Mudo situation doesn't get a lot worse. And they really have a team that looks similar to the last two to three seasons, really, overall. Like, it's an offense, it's good. It's a pitching that gets really suspect in the back of the rotation and has issues in the bullpen. Did they put themselves in a position to where you could see them legitimately winning this division and then also winning playoff series, or are they just kind of good enough to get there and not really good enough to go anywhere? So um, here's my take uh, on if you're good enough to get in, you're probably good enough to, if you just get in, you don't even have to be good enough to get in. If you get in, you you can do some damage, right? Anybody can get hot for a couple of weeks. I'll never, that 06 Cardinals team was one of the weakest world series winners of my Certainly of my career, probably the weakest World Series winner of my career, one of the weakest of my lifetime. And it didn't matter, right? They just, their pitchers especially did, you know, they just overachieved for a couple of weeks and that's all that mattered. And could you see that happening with this Phillies staff? Could the bullpen just suddenly what, take some fairy dust and suddenly, you know, suddenly they, they just pitch out of their minds for a couple of weeks and there's no explanation? Yeah, of course, that, that stuff happens all the time. So, you know, when I'm asked that on radio interviews a lot, well, are they really good enough to do something in the postseason? I mean, yeah, if you're in, you've got almost as good a chance as anybody else. The worst team in the playoffs has almost as good of a chance as the best team in the playoffs. That's Historically, that's been true. So, you know, that said, the Phillies probably could have done more at the deadline. I liked that they did each, any of those deals in isolation. I liked um, the fact that they made that deal with Texas and Traded away Spencer Howard, but I think they were really frustrated with the just the kids had a hard time staying healthy. And it's been you know, on and off shoulder stuff. It's never been serious, but he's missed a lot of time the last couple of years. I think they decided it was reasonable to turn the page to get some short-term pitching help and get a pitching prospect back in Hans Kraus. I'm not sure that they really downgraded that much in that department. Kraus apparently was up to 96 the other day. Slider looked good again. Um, you know, probably make a couple more starts in double A so they'll get more time with him. But I liked what they did. Like I said, individually, it's just overall, if any team should have gone out and just tried to grab more relievers, like any reliever possible, they should have just sort of just, we'll take them all, right? We'll take on the money. 
we'll give up a fringe prospect here and a lower level prospect here for two months of any relief pitching you have because everyone knew this going into the season. They were historically awful last year and they weren't that much better this year. They were better by comparison, but it was not a good bullpen and it's not been a good bullpen. And so if I were a Phillies fan, I'd say we got a shot. We did do something. I'm happy we did something, but I probably still don't feel great about, especially about the bullpen. I mean, there's definitely parts of the, even, you know, talk about the back of the rotation that way, but it's the bullpen that would really scare me. I guess my thought on the Phillies too, though, is that they can outhit their pitching flaws. They can score runs. Like that's something they've been able to do for yeah. a while. And I think yeah. they're getting a really great season out of Zach Wheeler. I think you and I discussed oh. that maybe a month yeah. or so ago, but it's continued. I mean, he's got five point six WAR yep. here on August twelfth. Yep. That's incredible. Aaron Nola hasn't quite been himself yet. I think if you said rest of the season, Nola's going to pitch as well as Kyle Gibson has pitched throughout this year in terms of ERA. You're going to get a low three ZRA from Nola here on out. I wouldn't push back on that, but you're probably also going to get a higher ERA from Gibson. You're going to get a, a four ERA from him. That's your big three. If Zach Eflin's healthy, I think he's probably, I think he's a little better than Gibson. So this, this does have the makings of being a playoff caliber rotation. Like I think they mm-hmm. could match up reasonably well and hold their own. Uh, I do think the bullpen was the area they missed out on. That was the clearest need for them to go get more help, and they just didn't do it. But I would agree with what you said earlier. You can get lucky as a bullpen for a couple series, and that's all you need to do sometimes in October to end up coming out on top. Uh, let's take a look at Atlanta for a moment. Travis Darno is back, which is kind of important for them because of where they like to hit him in that lineup and what he's done since joining that team it's kind of amazing because he's had so many injuries earlier in his career but <laughs> i don't know I never, I never looked at him and, and doubted his ability as a hitter but i also didn't look at him as a middle of the order run producer on a playoff team either so he's somewhere in the middle of that despite the way they use him they went nuts at the deadline with the outfield additions of course jock peterson jorge soler adam duvall a completely new outfield and they have Ian Anderson and Waskari Noah probably coming back from the IL relatively soon. So you know, Noah Cunha, of course, because of the injury. Marcelo Zuna, because of his suspension, I would be surprised if he's back at any point yeah. this season. Who cares, but, right? Yeah, Bye. See you later, dude. But yeah. is this offense, which still looks pretty good on paper, I, I think this offense is, is fine. I think it's kind of like the Philly situation where it's like, yeah, they got a couple flaws in the, the back of the rotation. And their bullpen might be a tick better than Phillies. Most bullpens are. And their offense is just <laughs> Your about as good. is better than the Phillies. Yeah. Yes, good job. Yeah. Good job, Derek. So I think Atlanta, they're, they look pretty solid. For as much as they've had go wrong on this team, they are yeah. not in the worst possible shape here in the second week of August. Yeah, still an above average offense for me. Loved what they did at the deadline. Not a lot of prospects involved. They give up on Bryce Wilson. I'm sure that one stung. But... At the same time, he wasn't getting better. And this has been, this is more of a systemic issue where Atlanta's had some problems with pitching prospects sort of getting, ripping through the low minors and having a hard time with that last step to the big leagues. We've seen it with Tukey, Kyle Wright, Wilson, Sean Newcomb wasn't their draft pick, but they had him for a long time. So I also understood them making that deal and helping the bullpen, right? That was a great deal for help in the short term, but a guy they also have in Rodriguez for a couple of years beyond this year. So to me, I, I loved everything they did at the deadline. But I want to also mention Austin Riley, who I think is the savior of the season for Atlanta, you know, especially with Acuna out for the rest of the year. You know, Freddie Freeman is doing Freddie Freeman things. I know that Jorge Soler has had a a tremendous two weeks, but Austin Riley, even as late as maybe the end of April this year, 
looked like he might not have a major league future. He was a consistently well well below average 300 hitter. Just basic non-ball strike recognition. And the switch flipped for him and for a little downstretch in June. But on balance, for the last three and a half months, he might be their best hitter. And he has been patient and he has been... Um, you know, patient in a way that's like hard to believe how different it is from the old Austin Riley. And it has allowed him to get into better hitters counts. He's always had power. Now the power really is playing. And he's been a good above average defender since he was probably in high A or double A or so as well. I mean, there's, you know, I don't, we don't talk a lot about MVP of a team, but he's their MVP. And he's a completely different player than I would say he ever was as a prospect. Which is to his credit, he's completely changed himself. And it's not even like he did it in an offseason, which is where we usually see this stuff. He did it like around May 1st. And it just, there's just a point in as you go through his game log where it's, did someone replace him with Folger's Crystals, right? What is <laughs> happening here? But it's great. I mean, he is a legitimately great player across the board. Patience, power, defense. Uh, you know, there's going to be some swing and miss, but so what? Everyone does that. I mean, this is a guy who I was always very down on as a prospect because he's, his approach was so limited. Um, and now he's like he's a guy you want to tune in and watch his at-bats. He's that good. Yeah, his walk rate right now, 9.7% this season, is higher than it was at just about all of his upper-level minor league stops. You can go back yeah. to rookie ball and find comparable walk rates, but that doesn't really mean a lot. Guys don't really find the zone there. Level of competition so low. With Riley, I think he's easily an above-average hitter the rest of the way. I liked him coming into the season. He caught my eye from a fantasy perspective because that's where I spend the bulk of my time. But he had cut the K rate down a lot in the shortened season and drew more walks in the shortened season. But there's no power last year. A 415 yeah. slug and a 301 OBP. That's the kind of guy that looks like he's going to struggle to find playing time. But I kind of looked back at the track record and saw the levels where he had to repeat. Like double A, he went back to in 2018 after he finished there in 2017. Triple A, he went back in 2019 after finishing 2018 there. He did show pretty consistent improvement when he'd go back to repeat a level. And that gave me some optimism that maybe he was starting to do that in the shortened season and that there was still one more round of adjustments that could happen this season. Atlanta's folks, like their player development folks, had always said they their belief with Riley, and this is going back to when he was in rookie ball, that he would struggle at first for a couple of weeks and then figure it out. Struggle for a couple of weeks and figure it out. Maybe this is the same pattern, but over a much longer period. Right? He had probably a full season's worth of at-bats where he was below replacement level mm-hmm. as a hitter before suddenly that switch flipped and his approach got – I mean, if you were grading approach, he went from a 35 on that 20 to 80 scale to at least a 60. I mean, his at-bats are legitimately great at this point. I don't know. I mean, I, that seems to me like a more of a deliberate – Guys just don't do that, right? They just don't get that much better in patience and play discipline that quickly. I have a hard time thinking of prospects um, who've done that, especially after reaching the majors. If you could take whatever Austin Riley did, like did he read a book or something that we could just pass around, right? If you give that to Javi Baez, Baez is going to win two MVP awards in the next five years, right? That is all that is preventing Baez from being a superstar. And Riley just went and did it. And as far as I can tell, there's a couple of stories floating around. He talked to this coach. He talked to that coach. He talked to, supposedly he talked to Chipper Jones. I don't know what the actual story is, but it has made him somebody who's like, he might end up at the bottom of MVP ballots this year. And I would love to know sort of more, more about whatever they did with him 
maybe we can try that with some other players because generally that that's been kind of an immutable characteristic. If you're just a hacker or you can't tell a ball from a strike, you can't tell a breaking ball from a fastball. Those are things that are very, very hard to change. Thinking about it just from the perspective of a prospect who I think has sketchy plate discipline to put it nicely, Mm -hmm. Drew Waters, does the success of Riley give you a little more hope than you would have had for Drew Waters prior to this season? Uh, It's, it's funny you bring that up because I had that same thought and even was looking. Waters has not been very good in AAA, and his approach has really never been very good. Um, he's also a kid, right? And he's, you know, we've got to give him some more time. He was kind of, he got to the high minors very young. And he would, if it were not for the pandemic, I think he would have been in AAA at 21. Um, so I'm willing to give him some time. His approach is pretty bad, but I feel like it is less. It's different in a way I'm struggling to kind of put it into words. Whereas Riley, I guess if you'd shown me both prospects and asked which I thought had a better chance to figure something out, I would have probably said to you neither because these are are things that generally just don't change. But Waters' approach seems a bit more reckless to me, whereas Riley was just struggling. Also, we'd seen Riley get so much better on defense, right? Riley came into pro ball. He was a bad defensive shortstop in high school. I knew a lot of teams that wanted him, wanted to draft him as a pitcher because he has such a great arm. Um, they were like, he's clearly not a shortstop. And they questioned the bat. And he went to third base. He really was not good his first year or so in pro ball, but he worked at it. That's one where Atlanta people said, no, he, Austin Riley worked and made himself a better defensive third baseman. Well, if you've improved like that in one area, if you've shown you have the work ethic and the acumen to get better at one thing, I give you a much better chance to do that at another thing. And that is, this is hindsight speaking, but why I would say maybe we shouldn't be quite as shocked about Riley doing this at the plate, even though I think that's a much harder thing to do. Whereas I don't think, I think Waters has coasted on natural ability for his whole career, and we've really not seen him try to make that kind of adjustment yet. He still could. He's young. And maybe he does it. Maybe he does it when he's 25. Maybe he does it this offseason. I don't know. But he's never made that leap like Riley has now done with two distinct things over the course of his pro career, which makes him like not just impressive, but admirable. Like We should praise a player who does stuff like that. He made himself a better player. He should be a model we hold up for other players who are also naturally gifted and hit that point in double A, triple A, or even in the majors where suddenly it's, oh, wait a minute, I I have to change something because natural ability isn't enough. Yeah, unrelated example that I just want to throw out there is Marcus Simeon. I mean, think about when he came into the league, the approach he had as a hitter, a lot of swing and miss in his game, that has changed over time. And then his defense, of course. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a huge transformation, which is only possible if you have the dedication and the work ethic to put it in. And obviously being in the right organization, that helps too and having the right coaches. But it says a lot to me about Simeon or Riley that they're able to change as much as they have. And I think it's an impossible thing to see on the stat pages. If you don't get live looks, if you're not around the park, you're not communicating with people who are around these players on a day-to-day basis, you really have no way of knowing where work ethic and makeup and these things tends to fall. No, it's, for me, it's one of the main things I ask amateur scouts when we're going into the draft. And you don't often talk about it unless it's really visible on the field, right? When we see a player who's moping or who appears to be mailing in at bats or gives up on the mound, that where it's visible, I might note it. But I always 
try to get a sense where a kid has, has really strong or really not strong makeup going into the draft and just let it inform my rankings without maybe explicitly calling a player out like that. And then it comes up pretty naturally in conversations with player development people because they want to tell you about the kids with the good work ethics. They don't necessarily want to tell you about the kids with not good work ethics. <laughs> maybe you have to ask the right questions. Maybe you just have to read between the lines a little bit. But yeah, to me, that I, it counts. That's the makeup that counts the most. I think there's a lot of stuff in makeup discussions that's just, for lack of a, word, a better word, it's a lot of bullshit. But there is also, there are aspects of makeup that I do think really matter, even if we can't truly measure them objectively. And to me, work ethic is absolutely at the top of the list over intelligence, whether you want to call it overall intelligence or baseball intelligence, whatever. You don't have to be the brightest bulb in the chandelier, but if you're willing to really work at it, you can get better. Do you feel like when you're watching players at various levels, do you feel like you have an ability to based on their reaction to different situations, draw meaningful conclusions about how they cope with failure, how they how, how they're going to respond to different situations. Like, do you feel like you can glean anything from live looks, or do you think that has to come from other sources? I think I can. Um, I think anyone can, right? Any any evaluator can. Scouts do this all the time. They're asked to do this. And when you see somebody who does not respond well to adversity on the field, or who or who does. You know, I, I think that's probably something we have to watch for more carefully. I think we may be a little more programmed to spot the negative um, rather than the positive. But the pitcher who, hey, the guy doesn't make the play behind him and suddenly for the next 10 pitches, the pitcher can't find the plate, loses his rhythm, or he's just visibly frustrated. Um, I've seen a lot of that. I've seen players do that and then grow up. Garrett Cole showed up one of his infielders as a freshman at UCLA. I was at the uh, at Minute Maid. Um, I don't remember who they were playing exactly, but I remember – and I've, I've – Always like Garrett Cole because how could you not as a pitcher? I mean, I mean, I ranked him really highly out of high school. It's the first time I'd seen him. He kind of came out throwing fire, and then shortstop failed to make a play. Okay, the shortstop probably should have made it. But Cole turned around and did the you know arms up like what the hell, <laughs> dude. You are nineteen. Not that anybody should be doing that at any age, right? But simmer down. That is a terrible look. And there's fifty scouts here watching that. Garrett Cole grew up. Gio Gonzalez was a guy I saw multiple times wilt when something went wrong uh, in a game for him. He was 20 and 21. I think the two times I saw that happen to him. His makeup, on-field makeup, was probably always a little shaky. Like He could definitely lose it, lose his rhythm a little bit when something went wrong, but he matured enough to have a very good major league career. So to me, this, those are the things to note, but I always have to remind myself that is absolutely something that can change players do people do grow up mature and learn to cope with things like that because it's very easy for me to be like i don't like that guy he gave up he mailed in that at bat and it's because it's so i mean you watch a lot of games right you see something like that and you're like i don't like that yeah. i actually just don't like seeing that it is i'm, I'm struggling for the word here but it's it's the, unappealing right it is ugh, distasteful to watch that <laughs> I don't care if you strike out, but try. You got to try. No one likes to see a pro athlete at any level not try. Right. Yeah. If you strike out on three pitches all down and away and you're not even considering the possibility that that third pitch is going to be down and away or you can just kind of see yep. it in the body language sometimes. It is is very frustrating to yeah. see that. 
Uh, closing the book on the Braves real quick. I mean, looking at their rotation, if you get Anderson back and you get Enoa back, and then you got Freed and Morton. Morton's had plenty of postseason success. Nice to have a guy like that in the mix. Their core four would be really good. Tuki Toussaint looks pretty good this year, Keith. He looks better than he's looked in the past, at least, which gives gives them something else to put in the bullpen probably come playoff time. And then yes. you, you, know, you add Richard Rodriguez, Will Smith, to me, at least an above-average late-inning guy. The rest of the bullpen is is solid. It's not necessarily elite. I actually kind of like them as a team that people are writing off for all the reasons we talked about earlier. Yeah, I am. Uh, I, I want to believe in Tukey. I have been a believer since he was since he was in high school. Arizona made him a first pound first round pick. Dave Stewart basically gave him away to clear some money off the books and. You know, Tukey's first two starts were looked really promising, and then since then, I think he's settled into more of the you take the good, you take the bad kind mm-hmm. of Tukey. But that's fine if he is a long man, extra starter, and he could be devastating in short looks in the postseason. With an eye towards no, this guy's always had starter potential. He's still only twenty five. Seems like he's been around forever, but he still has not just starter potential, but I would say high upside as a starter. For him, it's always about. Repeating the delivery for command and control, too. He's always walked too many guys. But if he gets – he's so athletic, I've always wanted to believe that he could eventually get there. And rather than say, this is it. This is the Tukey breakout. I'm almost trying to moderate myself here and say, no, this is a good step forward, right? And we'll take that. We'll be very happy with that. If he's healthy and throwing more strikes and missing some more bats, yeah, he's a little homer prone. He's had a few things. There's definitely a few things he still needs to work on. But this is – I'm trying not to get ahead of myself here, but it's like, this is the good Tukey, right? This is the one we've been waiting for for a while because I've always thought it was in there. Yeah, keeping a really close eye on that walk rate so far. Just nine yeah. walks in 27 and a third innings. It's a big step forward for him and I think a big key to him unlocking that next level. And, you know, I will say too, he's like, it looks like he's, there's maybe a deliberate effort to sink the ball a bit more too. I don't know if he's actually changed the pitch if it's just a little bit of a difference in approach. But whatever it is, so far so good. It's not going to miss a lot of bats that way. But if he keeps the ball down um, and lets him keep the ball in the park, which has been a bit of a problem for him on and off, there are little changes. There are little reasons to think maybe this is it. Maybe the breakout is coming. Let's get to the Mets. And on paper, maybe they look like the most complete team in the division so much is riding on Jacob DeGrom's health, though, for them, right? <laughs> if they have yep. DeGrom, you feel pretty good about him. If they don't have DeGrom, it's almost like that's the the one big thing that causes a bunch of other things to start to go wrong, even though it doesn't work that way. It's just like classic Mets, right? Oh, DeGrom's having this yeah. historically amazing season, and he's not healthy down the stretch in the postseason, and it all just falls apart. Yeah, that's – it is – you know, it's, I remember when the, God, what was it, 06, 07, whatever year it was, Francisco Liriano was just dominant for the Twins, and then he got hurt with a couple weeks ago. I'm just like, well, that's it for the Twins, right? They just lost their best starter. And they ended up in the playoffs and having a nice little playoff run. It was, hey, you know what? It's never down to one player in baseball. And so I feel like if you're a Mets, especially if you're a Mets fan, you're probably feeling like, oh, without DeGrom, we got no shot. You still have a shot. The rest of this team's actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, would you feel better about them with a healthy DeGrom potentially making five, six starts in October? Of course you would. I'm sure I would mentally increase their playoff odds, their odds of playoff success by a good bit more. 
if uh, if Degrom, if I knew for sure Degrom was healthy, probably by too much because I'm probably overstating his particular impact. But I do think um, they're a better team even without him, maybe than folks are giving them credit for because he's so good. We're overstating his impact. I mean, they got Carlos Carrasco back from injury finally, so they're one deeper in the rotation for now. They made the move to get Rich Hill, uh, Tywan Walker, and Marcus Stroman are both solid, so they're they're in a good spot right now. But that would just put them in a great spot to have a healthy Degrom maybe by September if they're lucky. And I like the way they can at least in the A bullpen have three or more nasty relievers. Edwin Diaz when he's on is really good. Seth Lugo, yes. Trevor May, that's a really nice trio to have. And of course, it's offense. I mean. Lindor is going to get healthy. They added Baez at the deadline, so they're really strong up the middle. And Conforto's finally healthy. I, I think this is a well-balanced offense. This is a solid rotation, and it's at least a good A bullpen. That's why I think they're the most complete team of these three. Yeah, I would agree with that. Again, without DeGrom, I would still agree with that. Yeah, they're better with DeGrom. Maybe a full season of a healthy DeGrom, and they're two games up, and we're having a slightly different conversation, but this is still... Like I said, like you said, a really pretty complete team. Maybe you could pick them apart a little bit defensively here or there. I think that's a quibble. I think I feel best about their pitching staff kind of one through 11 right now going into the postseason. If the offense is completely healthy, yeah, I would say the same thing. Looks like Lindor's starting to improve. Who knows? Maybe Baez. Maybe there's a free agent push in there. You know, he's definitely a guy where I was like, I was just saying earlier, have always believed there was something more in there than what we've seen. Uh, so yeah, I would say I feel, I mean, they were my preseason pick too. Maybe I'm just kind of holding to that a little bit too much. I still feel like that's probably the best team of the three and the best team is the best team doesn't always win, right? It could easily be one of the other two clubs. Uh, and that's not some sort of LOL Mets thing that is just take, you know, the best team doesn't always win. The best team sometimes finishes third and misses the playoffs. That could absolutely happen here, especially since it's probably going to come down to some head to head matchups down the stretch, but definitely just on paper. I would feel best about the Mets because they seem the least flawed. I think that's the same thing as what you're saying. But that's often one thing I look at. Those other teams, they got Phillies, that bullpen's a pretty clear Achilles heel there. Maybe you could say the same thing about Atlanta as just the fact they're missing their best player also. Um, Would you rather lose DeGrom for two months? Would you rather lose Acuna for two months? Well, you'd rather not lose anybody. But I would always feel like we could probably get away with not having the pitcher for two months than the two-way dominant you know, potential MVP position player. So yeah, that's a low degree of confidence, but I still think the Mets are the best team of the three. Low degree of confidence in actually saying they're more than a, you know, 33 and a third percent chance to win the division. In a strange way, it almost flips for me. Like the, would you rather be without your ace pitcher or without your best position player in the regular season? I think you can figure out a way to get by without the ace pitcher. But once you get to the postseason. I feel like the the pitching becomes a little bit more important because of the the variance you can get from position players and some of the strange things that we've seen happen over the course of, of playoffs. Well, the little research I've seen on this, and this goes back to some stuff that I thought I think Nate Silver did maybe 15 years ago before he decided he was an epidemiologist, he, that where... The, the front of your pitching staff, the strength, the back of your bullpen, essentially it goes to extremes, right? In the postseason, you might have a 26-man roster, but all 26 guys aren't going to play with the same frequency that they do over a 162-game season. I mean, this just sort of stands to reason, right? You're going to get a higher percentage of your innings are going to come from your one, two, and three starters and the best three or four guys in your bullpen. 
rather than the last two starters and the rest of the guys in the back of the bullpen who you know, probably are only in a playoff game if you're getting blown out at that point. So that makes sense, right? That those it's okay to be a little bit more unbalanced as a as a roster when you get into the postseason because you're probably playing your regulars every day. You're hoping that almost all your starts are the top three guys in the rotation. You're hoping that Edwin Diaz is is involved in a lot of games because you're he's your designated high leverage reliever. So you know, I could, you know, and to me, I think that's a, an argument that boosts the Mets in this situation. If I'm a Phillies fan, I'm feeling a little weird about that. Cuts both ways. Like, do I want to see my top three starters make all the starts in the postseason? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Do I want to see any portion of my bullpen involved much in the postseason? No, no, I do not. Yeah, you want to shorten up that bullpen as much as you possibly can if you mm-hmm. are a Phillies fan. Uh, let's take a look at the Red Sox for a moment. I mentioned this up top. It seems like, and I've been on the road for most of the past week moving across the country, but it seems like the Red Sox have been getting a lot of heat for their trade deadline approach in part because the Rays are opening up a little bit of a lead in the AL East. This is still going to be, I think, a good division battle down the stretch. Four games is the gap right now entering play on Thursday. A Rays are six and a half up on the Jays and six up on the Yankees for reference. All four of those teams, by the way, currently projected by fan graphs to get to 90 wins. So I uh, think The Rays at 94 have the highest projected win total right now. Did the Red Sox fail at the trade deadline? Or is this just a symptom of being in Boston and some conditions that have developed over the last 12 days? My response to that would be they needed a starter. They need a starter, right? The rotation is starting starting to turn back into who we thought they were. And... Who were they going to get? Right, they weren't. They didn't have a Kiber Ruiz Josiah Gray package to throw at the Nationals, which got Max Scherzer, who's obviously the best starter to change teams. And I don't think getting a Kyle Gibson was going to move the needle very much. So I'm not sure who that option would have been for them. You know, instead, I think it would be more. Hey, this Red Sox team's probably overachieved so far this year, given the rotation that they took into the season and the fact that look, this system has. They've just had a hard time developing pitchers the last five, six years, maybe longer. Obviously, they've traded some guys. Uh, they've had a hard time just keeping guys healthy and on track and getting them to the big leagues. And there's some guys coming. Jay Groom looks like it's the best that he's looked really since he first got hurt. Brandon Walter is the breakout prospect in their system this year, which kills me because he's from Delaware. He pitched college baseball 30 minutes from my house. He was like a 26th round pick, and I never saw him. Why would I go see a 26th round pick in senior sign? Now he's up to 97. Take a look at his stats. The guy's out of, I mean, he, he might be their best pitching prospect at this point. So, um, I think that's turning around a little bit. That doesn't do a dang thing to help them, to help the major league roster, right? They are, this is, we're dancing with the ones we brought. That's just it. And because I think there probably wasn't anything better out there and there was no help coming from within the system and, and, they did. They weren't going to get. If there was a better starting pitcher available in trade, the Red Sox are not still not that well equipped to go make that trade. One, they may just not want to trade those prospects. But two, they they didn't have the pieces to compete with like a Gray Ruiz type of offer. Maybe to pry someone better loose. You know, Kyle Gibson, Tyler Anderson. That's not it. I wouldn't. If I were the Red Sox, I would not be trading prospects to get a marginal upgrade. That's probably less than a win upgrade over what whoever they're replacing in the back of the rotation. That doesn't make sense to me. And other than that, what if you're a Red Sox fan, you're mad they didn't do anything. Who should they have gotten? Which guy who was traded 
did you want them to go get? Yeah, there's so many situations in life where people get upset about something. They want a coach fired. They want a player traded. It's like, well, okay, mm-hmm. what's your actual solution though? Like that's the, the first what? action is is step one, but you have to have a replacement. You have to have a step two. You have to have a plan. And most times people who are really angry don't even have an idea of what they would do once they create they that vacancy. Chris Sale's pretty important to this team. A, a captain mm-hmm. obvious statement, but even more important because they didn't have a fit out there on the trade market. And I'm with you on Gibson. I don't think Gibson was enough of an upgrade where it made sense to give up a really good young player for an organization that struggled to develop so much young talent and has a couple guys that I think are going to be impact players in the not-so-distant future. They need those guys. Can Sale be 80% of Chris Sale? Is that enough? If he's just 80% of himself coming off of Tommy John, that would still probably make him pretty easily their best starter. And a guy that league-wide would be a top 15, top 20 starter on a per-start basis once he comes back. set to come back here on Saturday. Yeah, I would say his return is better than any trade deadline acquisition of a starter they were likely able to make. I'm assuming they had such conversations and either said, that guy's not good enough for the price or we don't have the prospects to go get someone better. I don't even know offhand who that better guy would have been. You know, Could you have called the Orioles about a John Means trade? I don't think there was any real talk that he was going to get traded, but sure, you know, throw a name like that out there. The fact is, I don't think that was going to happen, but Chris Sale was coming. And even if Chris Sale is only a, you know, once a week starter and he's on a limited pitch count, sure, that's still more of an impact than they were likely to get from any trade deadline acquisition. Maybe that's the guy who saves their season in the sense that um, any little improvement, honestly, to the rotation just improves their playoff odds, despite the fact that they have been sliding back and they're now kind of in the three-team dogfight for what might only be one wildcard spot. They, you know, they're still right there, right? They're tied in the loss column, one game ahead, I think, of the other clubs. So of the Yankees and the Blue Jays, they're very much in it. And if Sale comes back and gives them, I don't know, where are we in the calendar? Six, seven good starts. You know, that might be an extra win. might be a little bit more given who he'd be replacing. And that, that, in turn, might be the one thing that pushes pushes them into that last playoff spot. Yeah, I think the thing that's working against the four teams competing in the AL East right now is just that the AL West is a little worse than expected. Specifically, the yeah. Angels are a little worse than expected. It makes it easier for the A's if they don't win the division, if they don't chase down the Astros. It makes it pretty easy for them to get one of those wild card spots and then just leaves one for whoever doesn't win the AL East. Well, those four AL East teams have to beat up on each other for what's left of the season. So... Uh, I think that's going to be the other division that's actually a lot of fun. And it's I think it's extra fun when it's not the Yankees, just clearly the best team in the division, right? They're the team that has to scrap. They're the team that has the slightly oh, yeah. longest odds to be a playoff team of those four. They're right there with the Blue Jays with a 46.9% chance of making the playoffs. Like, that's that's exciting. Like, I, I am not a Yankee fan. I didn't grow up a Yankee fan. I don't want to watch this team coast into the postseason every year. I will also throw out there, Right now, the Blue Jays might be the best team in that division. And it's not going to, probably not going to get them to first place. But I think they're probably the best team in the division on paper. If they make the playoffs, okay. Obviously, I said earlier, anyone in the playoffs is dangerous. Even the best team doesn't have that much better odds. But I look at that Blue Jays team and I think, damn, I don't want to face them in the playoff series. That, that's the watch out. People aren't. People are sleeping on this team. Nobody really, but you know what I mean. That that this team is better than people realize. Maybe because they played in Buffalo most of the season. But that that team's actually really good, and just it's kind of quiet relative to how good they are. We they should be, and it's, maybe it's just because they're not in first place. 
because they're in a three-team fight for the last wild card spot. But, I mean, I think they're better than Oakland, certainly. They may not catch Oakland in the standings. I think they're better than the Rays right now, on paper at least. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about the Jays, like they have the top to bottom great lineup that was expected coming into the season, and it's delivered in, I think, every way we could have hoped. But then the starting pitching has exceeded expectations because Ryu's been healthy. Robbie Ray has stopped walking guys. They added Barrios, which the Red Sox couldn't do or were unwilling to do at the price because the Jays were willing to come up with a couple guys who at least were were interesting by lows for the Twins. I know that's a, a pretty hotly debated trade around baseball Twitter. But then Alec Manoa has come up and pitched really well, too. So they're just mm-hmm. getting quality everywhere, right? You have a, a, a cheap free agent signing. You have your big free agent signing from a year ago. You have the guy you traded for, and you have the guy you developed. And none of those guys are even Nate Pearson. Like, I think right. if you say, <laughs> hey, gonna say that. they're, they're going to be in the race, like, oh, Nate Pearson must be pitching Nate well. Nate Pearson's going to be rookie of the year, right? Right, Absolutely. yeah. And they haven't even yes. done that yet. And then the bullpen's not bad, right? Romano, Simber, and it may get, Han, it may get Nate Pearson. Yeah. In the bullpen, which would be, I mean, he might throw 103 out of the bullpen. Yeah, they're really good, really quietly. And give them credit, too. The front office went out early and started adding pieces. And I know they didn't make, they made one large acquisition, right? Berrios, and probably just as large because it was notable that they traded Austin Martin and Simeon Woods Richardson. They they traded two pretty high-profile prospects in that deal. But it's more that the little deals too that they just went out and said nope we got all we have holes we're just patching early no one else is trading yet okay great buyer's market bunch of little acquisitions who knows if they all work out but the best way to do it and then to go make the one big splash we need another starter they needed another starter especially once it was clear pearson is never gonna this year is is not gonna come back and work as a starter for them they were aggressive and it's funny because i feel like for years a lot of blue jays fans have been frustrated with this front office you know what? This is the best Blue Jays team they've had under the new regime, and they're going for it. It's exactly what you want. They did. I mean, to me, now look back at their history. It's patient, patient, patient. We're building something. We're building something. Okay, now. Great. That's exactly what you want your front office to do. Timing is everything because you want to make sure when you do spend on George Springer that you are getting the bulk of the time you have him signed, you're going to be contending, right? Because at the end of the contract, it rarely is a good contract. You can live with that if you're competitive for three or four years at the beginning, right? I, I love the way they put this team together. And I, yeah, I think I'm with you. I think Jays Rays is kind of a, a toss up for me atop the division. I'd love to see both of those teams get in. I'd love to see the A's actually make the playoffs too and see the Yankees and Red Sox uh, sitting this one out. But uh, I don't know if the league necessarily would want that to happen no, for uh, ratings purposes. So what? Yeah, so I, don't, what? I, don't, I don't care about them. They don't care How about did me. The, I didn't even look, but you're, you're not hometown now, but the, right? It was the Bucks. And the Suns. It was an amazing series. Which is a great series. I felt like Twitter, you know, I, I don't really follow basketball. It was, the, it was the one sport of the big four that in my house growing up, we just never really watched. And, um, but just judging by Twitter reactions, people loved the series. There were some pretty big names, but Milwaukee's a tiny market uh, for major sports. And although Phoenix is a huge metropolitan area, it's not a big sport. You know, so many people are transplants. It doesn't have the local following, but I don't, think the NBA was regretting having two sort of non-marquee teams in the finals, right? They had a great finals that people couldn't stop talking about. I don't know what the ratings were like. I don't watch those. I tried to not pay attention to that anymore because nobody wants to talk about that. But it seemed like they got a great outcome. Like if we had that, a good seven-gamer, even if it was the Brewers and, um, God, I don't even know, Tampa Bay, 
Yeah, Brewers Rays, Brewers Jays, Brewers Jays. Yes, right. Brewers. Those would probably be the two that somewhat some numbers guy, number cruncher, the accounting department, Major League Baseball said, no, we don't want that. But I watch the hell out of that series as long as it's close, right? Oh yes, yeah. If we get those two to any either of those two pairs, and it's a close series because those are both legitimately great teams. That's also why why we're saying those names. That sounds like a great outcome to me. As a uh, recently moved to the Bay Area resident, I would love to see like Brewers A's for very selfish reasons, you know, catch a World Series game uh, nearby. But that's that's going way too far. I think <laughs> the bigger question here, are the Brewers a legitimate World Series contender? I know kind of pushed this down the road a little bit with the NLE's teams. Anyone who's good enough to get there is you know good enough to win. But the Brewers seem like they might be... If you took all the teams that are likely to be in the playoffs and you kind of put them into two groups, the, the the really good teams and the merely good teams, which of those two groups do you think the Brewers belong in? I think they're absolutely legit. And I'm going to say it again, I'm going to contradict myself again, um, would be pretty scary in the postseason, right? Because you're going to get the concentration of the top of their rotation, right? They are second in the NL in ERA allowed this year, only ahead of the Dodgers, the Dodgers have a slight advantage. They play in a better pitcher's park than the Brewers do. It's not huge. Um, and you know, although in the Brewers' case, it's not just pitching. It's a really good defensive club. And it's a slightly above average or above the median, I should say, offense too. So, yeah, I think they're absolutely legit. I think the pitching defense, the run prevention unit would be the thing that carries them. If you tell me you're, um, you've received a message from future Derek – saying that the Brewers won the World Series, but didn't say how, I would say, I bet it's run prevention. I bet nobody scored on them for like a month. Yeah. That that seems like the story it would be because their run prevention unit is that good. I know Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff and Freddie Peralta, these guys are not really necessarily household names. Although if you're a baseball fan, you don't know who Corbin Burns is by now, I can't help you. <laughs> but that's a really good front three. And we'll probably see a lot of them over the course of October. Yeah, I think they pitch deep into games consistently too, which really limits them yes. to the A bullpen, as I call it, on a frequent basis. And it's yeah. Boxberger, Devin Williams, Josh Hader, like seventh, yeah. eighth, and ninth. Those and guys are okay. They'll get it done. They they yeah. will generally show up for you. So I think that is absolutely the strength of this team. I think the thing that is really weirdly the the wild card with the Brewers is Christian Yelich. Like honestly, like in what world? If if two years ago. If, if future Derek had sent you a message two years ago, you said, who's this guy? Why is he asking me a Brewers question? That's probably what you just said. But <laughs> I send you a message and I say, Christian Yelich is going to be struggling and he's not going to look like the guy he is right now. And I say, I send you this during his MVP season. You would kind of like, what What do you mean? What, what right. What's going to go he's wrong? He's only 29. Yeah. And, and he's kind of reverted back to some of the things we saw at the end of his time in Miami where he's hitting the ball on the ground a lot more often the K rate is still up. It was up in the shortened season to 30.8% last year, 27.6% this year. He's walking great, but he's mm-hmm. just not doing damage the way that we've yep. grown accustomed to with Yelich. And I'm baffled by it. I don't really understand what exactly is wrong. And I'm not sure the Brewers understand what's wrong with him either. Yeah, he's not hitting the ball as hard this year. That seems to be the number one thing, right? He was. This was always a guy, going back to high school, Remember, everyone loved the swing. It's funny. He was nearly a Philly. The Phillies were going to take him if the if uh, the Marlins hadn't. Um, 
was it three picks ahead or something. The Marlins picked their pockets, basically. But the Phillies were not only were they going to take him, I think they were pretty convinced they were getting him at that point. Nobody really seemed to know the Marlins were gonna were going to take him. But it was always beautiful swing. He's gonna fill out. There'll be power there. And then it was just never there, never there, never there. Just waiting, 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 waiting. And obviously it kind of he got to Milwaukee and started just getting a, a little bit more law. And it wasn't a huge swing change that I that I can see, at least, but a little more loft in his finish and that hard contact started leaving the park a lot more. And now it's a double whammy where it's not even that just that he, he does look like the hitter he was in Miami, but worse, right? But more so, he is not hitting the ball as hard and he's not elevating the ball as much as he did during those peak couple of years. And I don't know if that is a just a swing thing um, or is it something's bothering him and that has caused him to change his swing. I know he's had some back issues. Was that predate, post-date? Was he having a minor thing that was bothering him and so he wasn't able to follow through the same way? But it was never serious enough that he would you know, miss a month or something. I, mean, I remember it's not exactly the same situation way back when I was with the Jays. Carlos Delgado tried to play for a couple of weeks through an oblique injury. And it was like, is this like, is this Chris Delgado? Did you send us the wrong brother or something? It just looked like the same guy at all. And finally, he, you know, and he also, we were terrible. And so I'm sure he felt some responsibility to go out and try to carry the team. Finally took a couple of weeks, healed up, came back. He was the same guy. And I don't know if that happens with Yelich because I don't know what the actual cause is. But if there is something physical behind this, I would, it would almost be the best explanation, right? Just go take a couple of weeks, heal up. We need you in um, October, right? If you got to spend three weeks on the injured list, that's fine. We need you 100% so you look like the guy from last year, obviously, or from the year before. Yeah, I mean, the way his 2019 season ended, fouling the ball off his leg, you know, coming back, didn't seem comfortable in the outfield for most of the shortened season, then had mm-hmm. the back injury this year. Injury is the simplest explanation. We are starting to see something similar. I don't know why Yelich and Cody Bellinger are just on the same plane in life. Like Everything they do seems like it's in lockstep these last few years. We're starting to see Cody Bellinger turn things around after a dismal start to his season. Maybe we'll see something similar from Yelich down the stretch. But if you if you get like, kind of using the eighty percent sale thing again with Yelich, get eighty percent of MVP Yelich back in this lineup. That's a huge lift for them too. Willie Adames continues to be amazing for them. Mm-hmm. I didn't think we'd see a level quite like this, but it has been really fun to watch that unfold. And they're getting quite a bit healthier too. I and mean, uh, this is a team that's built with some solid role guys, like the secondary contributors in the offense are pretty good across the board, right? The Omar Narvaez bounce back. Colton Wong's a solid player. Eduardo Escobar's a good role guy. Like They're they're pretty well balanced. Even if they are one of the weaker offenses that makes it into the postseason, they're not a bad offense necessarily. No, I would agree with that. And like I said, they're above average as a run-scoring team so far, above the median so far this year, and that's with bad Yelich. So what if they get just okay Yelich back? They don't even have to get good Yelich back. I think that's more that it's more than enough. This team is they're not the Dodgers, right? Everyone looks at the Dodgers and says it's the best team, and the Dodgers don't actually win the West. That's the best team in the National League. Sure. I, I can't argue that point. I might argue that the Brewers is the second best team, and every bit as well equipped to succeed in the playoffs as the Dodgers are. Yeah. So, you know, I mean there's almost a little bit of a you know narratives don't matter they're not real things but it would sort of be you know this Brewers team has been bubbling bubbling for a while came within a game of the World Series a few years ago 
it would kind of be nice to see them cap it off with at least a pennant. Yeah. Let alone their, their first ever World Series championship. But it's, it feels like we've been building towards this for, for a while now. And that now, especially now, all the pitching is really coming together at just the right time. If they could, if they just get okay Yelich back, I'd feel even better. Just need to keep that trio atop the rotation healthy, too. And they're up. We're recording on Thursday afternoon. They're 5 nothing on the Cubs early again, just destroying the Cubs in the series. But as we said, this is a JV Cubs lineup. Iowa Cubs. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's brutal right now. And I know you really liked what they did at the trade deadline. So we can kind of close with this topic. When do you think the Cubs will have a, a re-entry point to be contenders again, right? Talking about it with the Jays, like they were patient until the right time and they've pushed all the chips in to start making runs for the next few years in a way that makes a lot of sense. When you start looking at the group of players they've been able to acquire, mm-hmm. when, when's the next time the Cubs are in the mix to win a division or at least go to the playoffs? Hmm. If they're willing to spend money... I could see them getting there in three years. And that's on ownership, right? Ownership is running this like a small market team, but obviously they're not. Um, you know, maybe they have some real estate development they want to have. Aren't they trying to put a casino on top of Wrigley Field or something? Probably. Right? I mean, it's basically we're in this era where we've got a bunch of team ownership groups that are running their clubs like like it's private equity. We're just trying to bleed all the money out of it before we sell. Um and maybe the Ricketts are doing that. That wouldn't surprise me in the least. But if they were actually willing to spend on major league talent, they could get there sooner. They could accelerate the process. But as much as I love what the Cubs did at the deadline, I think they massively improved their farm system this year. Maybe as much as any club. In fact, I feel pretty strongly saying as much as any club other than the Pirates, who had the benefit of drafting first uh, in the draft last month. But the Cubs had a really nice draft and a great trade deadline. That system's a lot better. They're not close, though. I don't look at that and say, well, a lot of this talent they got, they're all really close. And it's not like there's this great young core sitting there in Chicago. They had a core. They ran them right up to the end of their contracts, and now they're gone. And it's going to take a while, I think, to turn that whole roster over, barring an influx of talent from outside the organization, of a major league ready talent from outside the organization. Yeah, I would say other than Wilson Contreras, they don't have a lot left on the big league roster that will continue to bolster that group yeah. of young players. So once they inevitably trade him, probably this winter, they'll get one more boost, but it's going to be a while. I think it is going to be three plus years before we see them back in the mix as a possible playoff team. But you do have a new piece up on the athletic five teams that have improved themselves the most for the future over the course of the season. Spoiler alert, the Cubs are among those five. So some good long-term news for you if you are a Cubs fan. Uh, hopefully the, the casino thing works out for them, though. That'd, be, <laughs> that'd really make Wrigleyville, Wrigleyville even more fun. Like, what else, what else could you possibly jam in there? Well, a casino would be great. Casino, yes, absolutely. It's what I've always said Wrigley Field needed was a Baccarat table. Yeah, that's what it's been missing all this time. That's going to wrap things up for this episode of the Athletic Baseball Show. Before we go, you should check out the Keith Law Show. This week's guest was novelist Jasper Ford, one of Keith's favorite writers. Really fun conversation that they had. Be sure to check that out. You can hear me on Rates and Barrels and the rest of our fantasy baseball podcasts. If you don't have a subscription to the Athletic, this is a great time to get one. Three ninety nine a month gets you in the door at theathletic.com slash baseball show on Twitter. He's at Keith Law. I am at Derek Ben Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show is back on Monday. Have a great weekend.